0: I'm so excited to record our David Bowie episode, guys. We already did.
1: What? I don't remember what? that. We did? Yep. Listen. David Bowie, ba rum bum
2: bum Station to station, ba ba bum bum This is
0: Discord and Rhyme, ba-rum-bum-bum, ba bum bum
3: is the whole thing like that
1: yes it is it's seven hours long (sighs) okay
4: new podcast rule no more recording episodes the same night as our moody blues holiday karaoke party this is discord and rhyme again (laughs)
3: Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. And show notes and our full episode archive are available at our website, discordpod.com. Roll call, Ben Marlin,
4: Mike DeFabio, Rich Bennell, and John
3: McFerrin. Time is waiting in the wings, but for now, it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Mike What album do you have for us, Mike, and why did you pick it?
1: The album I have for us is the 1976 album Station to Station by David Bowie. All right. Yes. And I picked it because we were going to have to cover Bowie sooner or later. It was just a matter of time. No getting around that. And Station to Station may or may not be my favorite David Bowie album. There's no way I can decide that. But I think it's his most interesting to talk about, not just because of the music, but also because of what was going on in his life at the time. So, Mike, what's your personal history with David Bowie? Well, I always knew David Bowie was a person with songs, but I, <laughs> <Accurate>. I, somehow, <laughs> I somehow avoided hearing very much of his music until I was maybe 15 or so, and I heard his album Scary Monsters. For anyone who hasn't heard that album, it begins with the song It's No Game Number One. So, my introduction to David Bowie was this. Like knowing you, you immediately fell in love, right? <laughs> Oddly enough, I wasn't frightened away by that. And uh, while side two of that album would would take some time to grow on me, I immediately thought side one was really cool. And this was also my introduction to the guitar stylings of Robert Fripp. And you all know how that story ends. But uh, for whatever reason, I didn't start investigating Bowie's other albums right away. Uh, the catalyst for that was hearing Space Oddity on the radio one night as I was falling asleep. I guess hearing that song really quietly in the dark while you're gradually drifting out of consciousness is the ideal way to hear that song for the first time. For here am I sitting in a tent- I wound up buying the Changers Bowie compilation pretty soon after that, and boy, did I ever play that a lot. What a bunch of good songs. And also Fame 90. (laughs) From there... (laughs) Not to be confused with the Far Superior Freedom 90. (laughs) It's better than Don't Stand So Close to Me 86, though. Uh, From there, I gradually started hearing as many of his albums as I could find, which wasn't always easy because that was during the dark period when... The Ryko disc reissues of his albums had gone out of print, but Station to Station was one that I was lucky enough to find on cassette, and I listened to that a lot, sometimes while going from station to station after school. (laughs) So, John, what is your history with David Bowie? I
0: first started buying David Bowie albums in 2000 during my junior year of college, though I soon realized that I knew a number of songs prior to then even if I hadn't formally made the connection to Bowie himself. Prior to this, Bowie was more of a vague abstraction to me than a musician I had any particular interest in getting to know well. And this remained the case after I first listened to Ziggy Stardust, an album that initially prompted a reaction of, wait, that's it? in me more than anything else. Mm. I do like it a lot now. Mm. I kept buying his best-regarded albums primarily from the 70s, mainly because I felt I should. And while I definitely took a shine to some of them, in particular Heroes and this one, there remained a degree to which becoming more familiar with Bowie had a feeling for me of doing my homework or eating my vegetables rather than something I really wanted to do. This feeling held through my 20s and into my early 30s. And when I wrote up a full Bowie page for my site back in 2010... I did so much more from a position of respect than of genuine enjoyment. Now, in my 30s and beyond, however, I have become much more fond of Bowie in totality than I ever expected. A major reason for this is that I came to realize that Bowie, for lack of a better way to put it, had become a central hub in my music tastes as a whole. I used to have a mild obsession with playing six degrees of separation games with different musicians relevant to my collection. And I eventually noticed that when I tried to find a connection between two very different musicians, the path to connect them would inevitably either pass through Bowie himself or through one of Bowie's closest collaborators. Or the Bacon Brothers. Yes, them too. (laughs) Along these lines, I increasingly couldn't help but notice that Bowie kept wanting to work with musicians that I love, and that musicians I love kept wanting to work with Bowie. And I also couldn't help but notice that, over and over again, when musicians worked with Bowie, they just kept on churning out career highlights. Add in that, despite the impression given by the live albums he released in the 70s, the various archive releases over the decades have shown that he was a spectacular live performer— who squeezed out the very best from his backing bands. And you have somebody who's basically guaranteed to just go up and up and up for me. Now, as for Station to Station itself, this is my second favorite from him. And it's one where all of the tracks are interesting in the studio and also where they worked effectively live at some stage of his career or another. Nice. How about you, Rich?
4: Well, my Bowie phase was mostly in late high school But like Mike mentioned, it was kind of hard to get into Bowie For a brief dark stretch in the late 90s Like between the Ryko Disc reissues of his albums and the EMI ones Uh, So whenever I checked the Bowie section at the CD store It was empty, save for a couple of compilations Uh, Mm. And the first album I managed to find Was his drum and bass album, Earthling, at the public (laughs) library Which is an interesting album And it was his most recent one at the time But it's not very representative of him as a whole and I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, he has, he's famous. He's tried on so many styles over the years, Uh, but either way, it's kind of mind boggling to think of today, like of a period where you couldn't just listen to any music you wanted, like at at the push of a button. (laughs) Uh, But uh, other than that, I don't really have a deep personal history with David Bowie. Uh, I bought a good deal of his albums. Uh, I listened to Station to Station is my favorite one. I listened to it just dozens and dozens of times. Uh, Though I, I did get the chance to see him live on the reality tour in 2004 for my college newspaper. Um, and he actually played at the Berkeley High Community Theater, which was a, a pretty small venue for such a huge name. It was it was cool. And I, I think that was the last full length tour he ever did. So I uh, unintentionally uh, got to see some history there. There's a really good live album from that tour. Mm-hmm. It was a it great was, show. Uh, he was yeah. backed by the polyphonic spree of all people. And they performed a song with him. Wow. Yeah, uh, I think it was a uh, I, I believe it was slip away from the heathen album. But uh, I'm, I'm not quite That's sure. Great song. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, And I was as shocked and numb as everyone else when I learned about his death in January 2016. Uh, I actually found out on the bus to class during grad school, and uh, I'd forgotten my headphones that morning, very uncharacteristic of me. Uh, So before class started, I just kind of sat in the student lounge before anybody else had shown up and listened to Life on Mars on my phone speaker.
2: It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair She's lifted ten times or more. She could spit in the eyes of fools. And they asked her to focus on shame fighting in the dance hall. Oh man, look at those cave and go. It's the freaky show
3: So I discovered hey. Bowie in college. Uh though for a long time I only had the Ziggy Stardust album and ziggy's amazing it's my favorite bowie album and one of my favorite albums anyone's made Uh, from there though it took a while before i got any deeper into bowie but in my early 30s i heard the song beauty and the beast from his album heroes that was interesting not the type of song I would normally get into uh, so maybe Mike had some kind of influence on me somehow (laughs) Um, Beauty and the Beast was as catchy as his radio hits but it was weird it was dark and forbidding and unhinged its catchiness wasn't so much contained in a feel good radio chorus as it was a cobbling together of all the elements of catchiness into a lurching Frankenstein's monster of an earworm
0: someone fetch a priest
3: (laughs) (laughs) that too So from there, I bought all of Bowie's albums and became a big fan. And along the way, I literally wrote the book on David Bowie. Okay, I wrote a book on David Bowie. Well, an e-book. And it's not at all authorized by the Bowie estate. In fact, I've even gotten some angry cease and desist messages via my Ouija board. (laughs) As I will probably mention a few times over the next hour and a half, the book is called All the Days of His Life, Listening to David Bowie, Song by Song, because that's what I did, and I wrote about all of them. It's by me, Ben Marlin, and it's available on Amazon.com, and unfortunately not available at any bookstores that treat the working poor humanely.
4: (laughs) On that note... (laughs) <laughs> I am a recent proud purchaser of, uh, of this book and it's has uh, been what what I've read is really good. I don't know. The rest of it might be crap, but, uh, I'll, I guess I'll find out <laughs> later.
3: I'm glad you found the good page. <laughs> um, it's, it's really good. Even the parts that are wrong. <laughs> oh, I'll take that. I'll take that. <laughs> I, I, I want to entertain more than anything. So thank you. Um, so Mike, can you tell us a- about David Bowie's history?
1: Yes, I can. <laughs>
2: Nicky played guitar, jamming good with Weather and Gilly, and the spiders from Mars. They played it left hand, but made it too far. Became the special man, then we were Ziggies Bad.
1: Well, if I go over David Bowie's entire career up to the recording of Station to Station, we'll never get to the album. And you all know who David Bowie is. You're alive on planet Earth. So I'm going to take an in-media-res approach here and focus on the albums that led up to this one. And we're going to begin at the Hammersmith Odeon on July 3rd, 1973. Uh, Of
2: all the shows on this tour, this, this particular show will remain with us the longest because... Not only is it... Not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show that we'll ever do. Thank you.
1: Now, of course, what he meant by that was that it was the last show they would ever play as Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. But the audience didn't know that. And also the band didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) So the first album Bowie made after being from space for two years was an album of 60s covers called Pinups, but hardly anybody likes that album, and I always forget it exists. The first album of original material Bowie recorded in the post-Ziggy Stardust world was 1974's dystopian concept album Diamond Dogs, which was originally meant to be based entirely on George Orwell's 1984 until the Orwell estate said no. It was a strange and, in my opinion, quite underrated combination of glam rock, art rock, and creeping in around the edges funk. Yeah! <laughs> diamond dogs tour which featured an elaborate stage show with sets and props and bowie in character as halloween jack who was totally different from ziggy stardust because he had an eye patch (laughs) something (laughs) funny happened bowie decided i don't want to be halloween jack anymore i want to be a soul brother And that was how the Diamond Dogs tour became the soul tour halfway through. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yep. I didn't know either. Why not? (laughs) The soul tour resulted in Bowie's first live album, David Live, one of his easiest albums to find used, and led to the recording of the full-on Philly soul album, Young Americans. (laughs) which does have the title track and fame on it but it mostly saw Bowie downplaying most of his idiosyncrasies for the sake of making a really authentic soul album and it just didn't work. I don't think too many people would list it among their favorites. My brother loves it.
4: Really? Yeah, I've actually heard some I've actually heard some very enthusiastic raves about young Americans in recent years. Huh. I personally don't agree, but it's an interesting argument.
1: Yeah. Mhm. Huh. I guess yeah, there's there's some reevaluation going on. But anyway, that brings us to the making of Station to Station. So by 1975, Bowie was living in Los Angeles. And if you're a rock star in the 70s and you stay in Los Angeles too long, things are going to get weird. (laughs) And weird they got. Bowie was living almost entirely on milk, peppers, and cocaine. He slept approximately zero hours a day. He weighed about 95 pounds. And he was a paranoid wreck. He would hallucinate that bodies were falling past the windows during interviews. According to various stories, he thought Jimmy Page was trying to kill him. He thought the Manson family were trying to kill him, (laughs) even though they were all in jail. Fair enough. (laughs) And he thought witches were trying to steal his precious bodily fluids. He was so coked out that after Station to Station was released, he famously remembered almost nothing about making it. Probably for the best. Yeah. It was in this state that Bowie set about creating his newest character— The Thin White Duke. The Thin White Duke was, in many ways, Bowie's most interesting character yet. A soulless, aristocratic, anti romantic, singing songs about love while feeling nothing. The problem was that Bowie had a tendency to become the characters he created, and the Thin White Duke was kind of a total fascist, (laughs) which resulted in Bowie saying things in interviews about Hitler being the first rock star and Britain needing a good dose of fascism, and rather controversial remarks of that nature. The culmination of all that was a photograph of Bowie at London Victoria Station doing what sure looked like highling. Most likely he'd just been caught mid-wave, but the optics weren't great. <laughs> Later on, he would go to great lengths to explain that the whole thin white Duke persona was intended as a commentary on society and what have you. But at the time and in the state that he was in, people didn't know what was going on. So it's kind of surprising that Station to Station is not only not a complete disaster, but one of the best albums he ever made. That's partly because of the killer band he assembled. Earl Slick on lead guitar, Roy Batan of the E Street Band on piano and organ, Harry Maslin on melodica, synthesizer, vibraphone, and co-production, and most importantly, The rhythm section of Carlos Alomar on guitar, George Murray on bass, and Dennis Davis on drums, all three of whom would stay with Bowie for the rest of the decade. But a great backing band does not necessarily a great album make. And I think Station to Station shows that even at what was probably the lowest point of his life, Bowie was still capable of making some of the coolest, most interesting music of his whole career.
4: Yeah, it's a really interesting case study of a genius's brain on autopilot. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I like that take on it, Mike. Um, So before we get to the album, we
3: have a new Patreon donor to thank this week. Pontus. Thanks, Pontus. Monthly donations from our listeners are part of what keep the show going. So big thanks to everyone who's been chipping in as well. Anyone who wants to sign up as a donor, just visit patreon.com forward slash discord pod. We just released a new bonus episode about our favorite greatest hits compilations, and there are more on the way. Yeah. That's a really fun episode. Thanks. If you have any feedback about the show, we're on both Twitter and Instagram at discord pod, and you can email us at discordpod@gmail.com. At gmail.com. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple podcasts, it would help us reach more listeners. If you left us a rating or a review, and if you're not on Apple podcasts, spread the word any way you can on your favorite music forum on social media or maybe on Reddit, a site we are all terrified of.
4: <laughs> Petrified. <laughs> uh, also, also, another reminder that we'll be doing our annual Q&A episode in about a month. Uh, if you want to know anything about the show, have questions about individual episodes, or just have just you know silly questions you want to throw at us. Uh, we're currently planning on releasing the episode on April 6th, so email your questions to discordpod at gmail.com or uh, just add us on Twitter at discordpod sometime by the end of March.
3: So let's get started with the first station on Station to Station, Station to Station.
1: So the first thing you notice about this song is that it's over 10 minutes long. The second thing you notice is that it starts with a solid minute of flanged out train noise. (laughs) We seem to like songs that are trains on this podcast, and this one beats them all. (laughs) Bowie's not just using a sound effect as a gimmick here. He's got a lot invested in that train noise. And I've actually got, got a quote here from Harry Maslin. And this is from a, a book I found at the library by Dylan Jones, no relation, I don't think, called David Bowie, A Life. And here's, here's what Harry Maslin says about the making of Station to Station. Quote, I thought David was an extremely complicated person. Usually people in the arts are either visual or aural, and David was both. He saw things differently from most people. Obviously, one can see that from the personas he had at the beginning of his career, and we dealt with that in the studio. That duality of visual and aural. I think you can see it in something like TVC15, for instance, and even Station to Station, where he wanted the train sound at the beginning. He said, wouldn't it be great if it moved? That to me is all visual. Even the feedback to me is more visual than it is aural. He's seeing that sound. It may sound crazy, but I truly believe he's seeing the sound. So there you go. David Bowie, Synesthete. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Sounds right. Orange. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a there's a live album recorded in 1978 called Welcome to the Blackout. Mm-hmm. And on there the train noise section goes on for about 4 minutes. It's kind of amazing. But let's get into the actual song. It kind of lurches to life with an extended instrumental section that's definitely some kind of groove, but not the kind you'd hear on Young Americans. It's funky but in a stiff vaguely ominous and strangely European way Uh, in other words Bowie was really into kraut rock around this time Uh, he used Kraftwerk's radioactivity as entrance music on the tour for this album and he actually wanted them to open for him but that didn't work out
2: Discovered by Curie.
1: And Kraftwerk would return the favor on their similarly train-noise-themed Trans-Europe Express, which mentions Bowie, Iggy Pop, and this song by name. From station to station, back to Düsseldorf City, meet Iggy Pop and David Bowie. Trans! but uh you can really hear that influence here not just in the sound of the music but how long he lets it go on before he even sings anything uh that guitar feedback uh played by earl slick was made by chaining six amplifiers together all with different effects on them in order to get that incredibly long sustain We get to the sung part of the song, and it might be better if you don't try to decipher it too much. Bowie was really into things like uh, William S. Burroughs' famous cut-up technique. Oh, like Robert Pollard. Yes, where uh, you take what you've written and literally cut the paper up and rearrange it to get word combinations you might not have thought of. Uh, Bowie was also really into esoteric mysticism around this time. And I gotta tell you... Once lyrical analysis starts delving into esoteric mysticism, that's kind of when I tune out. Now, in tarot, this card represents. (laughs) So there are all sorts of references to Kabbalah and Gnosticism and Aleister Crowley and the Golden Dawn. But please forgive me for not wanting to go down that whole rabbit hole to figure out what it all means.
4: Yeah, the good thing about Bowie is that there is plenty of writing about him by everyone ever, if you want to go down those rabbit holes.
1: Oh, yeah. And there's there's a lot of writing about Station to Station in particular. But uh, the main thing for me here is the general feeling the words give off. And more than that, Bowie's delivery of them. The Thin White Duke is clearly a very grandiose person, which makes for a really cool song, but I don't think he's somebody I'd want to meet. But just when you think the song is going to trudge on like that forever, what happens? It changes. That moment when the song just suddenly gets bigger. It's not just length that makes a song an epic, but the sense of scale. And this song is really the closest Bowie ever got to a prog epic. Even though what this part mostly reminds me of is Elton John at his most ambitious. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of something like Love Lies Bleeding. Yes. Yeah. That's in my mm-hmm. notes right here.
2: L-O-P.
1: And then, of course, you have what's probably the most famous line in the song. It's not the side effects of the cocaine. I'm thinking that it must be love. I probably don't need to tell you that if you have to say it's not the side effects of the cocaine, it's the side effects of the cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) As for the whole bit about the European canon, your guess is as good as mine. It could just be more coke-induced grandiosity, but who knows? To me, Station to Station is best understood as representation of where Bowie's head was at when he wrote it, and the inner machinations of his mind were an enigma. But even though I can't claim to understand a lot of it, as a listening experience that takes you from one place to another, this is pretty incredible. Rich, what do you make of this one? Well, breaking down the two parts of the song, uh, I love the first
4: part of the song so much. Like, uh, I mean, I know, so I know Bowie recorded this album in Los Angeles because I was told he did, Uh, (laughs) but this feels like the real transition to the Berlin trilogy that came after this, like both in terms of style and just in terms of kind of like sound painting. Uh, So I visited Germany as part of my honeymoon and I took the train into Berlin Uh, and the way this song kind of lumbers along, it it reminds me of how the landscape becomes more and more industrial as uh, as you approach the Berlin Central Station. Or I guess to Help Bahnhof is what they is what they call it, um, and the intro like literally being influenced by a Kraftwerk song matches that pretty well. So they, like they literally have a famous song where, about you know driving on the autobahn. Um, and it, it also kind of vaguely so this came later, but it also kind of vaguely reminds me of the machines theme from Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which becomes <laughs> like the song is a gigantic clanking beast on its way to vaporize humanity or something. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but that melodica, it, it makes it feel kind of organic at the same time. So uh, mm. I really like the melodica in this song. Um, the second part. Uh, so it's a lot of fun and I love it, but uh, so it's, it's strange. I can't shake that. I always feel a tiny bit disappointed when it shows up. Uh, and it's not that it's a bad song because it's not, it, it's a, it's the loss of that sense of anticipation like mm-hmm. yeah. like one of my teachers in high school called this uh, December 24th syndrome where the waiting is part of the fun. Uh, and once you get that uh. release, there's just nothing else to look forward to. And and so uh, along those lines, uh, I, I liken the song to, like Mike mentioned, uh, a Funeral for a Friend, Love Lies Bleeding by Elton John. Um, and actually another thing I another thing that makes me think of is Band on the Run by Wings, uh, yeah. where the the first half of both songs is, is this gigantic, portentous build with all sorts of moving parts. Um, and then the tension releases halfway through, and the song becomes like a terrific but much more conventional pop song. And uh, it, it's hard to explain because in both of those songs and this song, I, I love what comes at the end. They're all great songs, but it, again, I also kind of miss the wait. Like now that we're in the clear and just having a party, so it, it's it's hard it's hard to explain because it's a, it's a section of the song that I give an A plus. But like just uh, yeah, I, I miss it being December twenty fourth. Hmm really
3: like that take on it. I was hoping we could all agree that this was not Prague. Uh, but that's not the case. Um, I
1: said it was the closest thing he got to Prague.
3: <laughs> okay. Um, now this, this is a behemoth of a song. I mean, it's like Bowie's Washington crossing the Delaware. It's, it's just huge. Um, what do the lyrics mean? I, I have no idea. I mean, as Mike talked about, um, it's kind of all over the place. And, it probably doesn't matter too much. I mean, that's kind of my going theory about a lot of David Bowie's lyrics. They're literate. They're fun. They, they can send you to the encyclopedia. You know, each line can send you to a different place, um, you know, trying to figure out what he's talking about, but they don't always add up to anything too substantial. It's kind of like, he's just jumping from idea to idea, but he's not always telling a story. Um, but that's fine because there's so much to focus on in the music. Um, You know, and Rich talked about the buildup of the song. I love how the sounds enter one at a time, almost cautiously um, over the length of really of a normal pop song until they all find each other. And then it just builds up to this unstoppable crescendo. Rich has also made the point, rightly so in the past, that five minutes is the worst length for a song. And basically just five minute songs somehow go on forever. But this is twice as long and it just flies by. Um, And there's not even any noodling. You know, a lot of songs that are this long, you know, take up time with soloing. And that's fine, especially when it's done by, say, Herbie Hancock uh, instead of like Rick Wakeman. Uh, But (laughs) there's no noodling in, in Station to Station. You know, every second of it is vital in helping it reach the amazing place that it ends up.
4: That's a good point, Ben, because I, I mean, if Station to Station just opened with this like catchy five minute, you know, dance funk song, I would probably get bored of it. But with that build, <laughs> it, it, I
1: love it. So, yeah, there was a single edit of Station to Station. I haven't heard it. I can't imagine it works very well at all. <laughs> it, it loses the point.
3: Yeah. The point is that it's 10 minutes long. You, you yeah. need the
0: train. Right. John, what do you make of it? Wakeman's great on Life on Mars. Hush your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love this track. Um, in terms of uh, just a general album structure, something I can't help but notice is that uh, the two sides of this album somewhat uh, parallel each other uh, in, in that they follow a, a, a similar general pattern. You have a sci-fi guitar rocker with lots of great piano followed by a funky poppy guitar rocker uh, followed by an epic, anthemic soul-influenced ballad, and in both cases, uh, on each side, the sci-fi guitar rocker is my favorite. I I, I love this track. Uh, the first time I heard this, I was completely bewildered by those first three minutes. I, I didn't know what the hell I had gotten myself into. I, based on what I knew about Bowie to that point, I I could barely believe that this was Bowie. Like I knew that to expect something different. Uh, from what i I gotten to that point but I was I was nowhere near prepared now by like the third listen I was I was all the way in um Mike mentioned uh the uh mentioned the live versions uh they're available so there's he he released a live album in the late 70s uh, called stage which is fine uh the welcome to the blackout uh, release has more life uh, just in a lot of ways but thing I want to note is that the person uh doing that uh noisy guitar uh stuff at the beginning of the live version is adrian Ballou. yes yes and, and and he's a lot of fun there for me the that drum break like like just just putting everything like with the song aside from it afterwards like that is one of the coolest quick drum breaks in hmm. the entirety of rock music hmm. it's it, i i i smile and drum to it every single time to that do it's it's just it's just such a jolly little moment, and and for me, like what comes after, like I I get the idea that yeah the, the sense of anticipation is gone and now you're into just the the really cool rock song. But it's it's one of the best five minutes of rock in the seventies. No, I I do agree with the idea of of five minute songs unto themselves, um, not being great. I mean, a lot of times a six minute song in some ways feels shorter than a five minute song. Um but, you know, this is a magnificent five minute song that just happens to have that that great build tacked onto the beginning of it. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, and you know, so I, I saw a thing like uh I do the last few days someone posting the question of what songs can you think of that are ten minutes long that, that are good? And I saw some people say, like, no, there's none of them. So <laughs> like, and, and I'm just like if if you're not going to like this then yeah, 10-minute songs are probably just going to be a complete no-go for you. Like, this is so obviously likable uh, in my mind for somebody who has any toleration of of slightly off-the-beaten-path 70s rock music. Yeah, big fan.
3: Well, so I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And I'm saying this unironically. That's a great 10-minute song. (laughs)
2: Sure.
3: (laughs) All right. So the second station on Station to Station is golden
2: years. Come, the baby, last night they loved you opening doors and pulling some strings. Angel, come, the baby, then walk luck and you looked in time. Never the foot walked all at by. Of a drink card twenty but long, don't cry my son, don't break my heart. Doing a light look kind of gets smart. wish on wishop one day upon day, I believe a I believe all the baby Run for the shadows, run for the shadows, run for the shadows in these golden years.
1: So now that you've made it through ten minutes of art rock mysticism. Here's a hit single for dessert. (laughs) This was the first single from the album and it made it to number eight in the UK and number 10 in the US. More than that, though, it earned Bowie an appearance on Soul Train. Another train. Yeah, another (laughs) train. They just keep coming. For a long time, I thought he was the first ever white performer on Soul Train, but it turns out Elton John had him beat by about six months. He played Benny and the Jets. So Golden Years is definitely a funk song. But it has so much more bite to it than anything on Young Americans. I think a big part of that is that it's both funky and thoroughly Bowie. Yeah, He's not trying to sound like anyone but himself here. So instead of sounding like an imitation of funk, it sounds like Bowie-fied funk, which it turns out is a very, very cool thing. Uh, Station to Station might be the greatest song on the album, but Golden Years is the most fun. I guess it's possible to be in a bad mood while this song is playing, but it's not very easy. Especially during that whole some of these days and it won't be long sort of quasi rap section. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) Bowie's vocal here is incredible. If you attempt this at karaoke night, you will fail humiliatingly and with long-term consequences. I've read in a few places that Bowie wrote this with Elvis Presley in mind, but he turned it down. But by that point, the king was a little more than a sentient tub of bacon grease, so I suppose it's just as well. <laughs> it's great.
3: I can appreciate <laughs> that, even as it makes me angry. Um, <laughs>
0: John, what do you make of golden years? I mean, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, my, my My favorite version of Bowie is the genre ambiguous just crash everything together Bowie, and you know part of that is represented in just the the juxtaposition between uh station to station and this one just having these two tracks back to back but also like this might be a funk song but there's so much built into it like it's also a great air guitar song Mm mm-hmm like I, I remember, or I remember, I don't know, being in like a TGI Fridays once, and this came on. I s- someone put this on the jukebox, and like suddenly, like that was the coolest that a TGI Fridays had ever been. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it, and and again, I have I have no idea what the lyrics. I, I I vaguely know what they are, and I don't really care what they mean. But just the idea that someone can write a song like this more or less on creative uh, on mental autopilot when they're just making creative decisions that will not actually register in their brain after the fact (laughs) it's 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 mind-boggling to me um yeah it's it's one of bowie's best pop songs for sure rich what's your golden years take
4: it's a good one Uh, Of course, it's a good one. It's golden years. Uh, Well, so so I've never I've never done cocaine and I don't plan to. uh, But based on how people have described it to me, this this sort of feels like a song for when you've been partying all night. uh, It's and it's already six in the morning and your body is ready for sleep, but your mind is still full of energy. Like like this is one of the sleepiest upbeat songs I've ever heard. And (laughs) uh, that's what makes it work. Uh, Actually, Love is the Drug by Roxy Music is another song that's like that. for Yeah. Uh, it's it's a genre of a few. I'm sure there are plenty of songs like that. Everyone was doing coke in the 70s. Uh, But it's also one of the reasons I'm glad Mike picked Station to Station in particular because uh, I'm going to be honest, it's basically the only Bowie hit single I'm not completely goddamn sick of. (laughs) Like like the Bowie catalog, it it has kind of a queen problem for me, though to a much lesser extent, Uh, by which I mean like a lot of his songs have become so ubiquitous that they become just kind of part of the wallpaper. And I realize that's a really stuck up way to evaluate art, but I, I can't help it. Like there's just a point where a song becomes so big that it loses all meaning and and that's happened with a lot of his songs with changes with space oddity with fame uh, with let's dance rebel rebel like just so many of his songs but it, for whatever reason uh, golden years feels small enough that it still kind of gives me those warm fuzzies like uh, you know, like I'm singing along with a big group of friends, and not like a gigantic stadium. Right after we will, <laughs> right after we will rock you. We are the champions. Uh, so, so, so that's my really snooty take on Golden Years. Well, well nothing from this album really ha- would have had a chance
0: to have the same kind of ubiquity, uh, just because, just because of of the place that it came from, like. You know, again yeah there's there's this there's this feel of darkness and this but this feel of i don't know scuzziness mm-hmm. that's going to make people like oh m- maybe i should go listen to changes again <laughs> because are you're uh, you're not necessarily you're, you're going to have to be somewhat of a connoisseur to go after this one mm-hmm. and, and in a way that's a good thing yeah
3: I like and Rich. I like your point. So it's possible that this is one hit that that's not going to end up in the inevitable biopic that that'll be in theaters near us.
4: Oh, you're one so, of those biopic
3: people. <laughs> I, I don't even like them. I'm am saying it's inevitable, and this is one that's
4: not going to show up in the biopic. Oh no, I mean biopic versus biopic. But that, that oh. that's one that's that's one of the great oh. internet arguments. It's been raging for years. <laughs> uh, I am a proud biopic person, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> but but, but this could this could be a 20 minute argument if you let it so let's just move on the study of biopics (laughs) is biopia
0: (laughs) we'll have to disagree here Um, so
4: (laughs) what could possibly go wrong
3: (laughs) the catchy guitar riff on golden years was invented either by guitarist carlos alomar or earl slick they both claim to have written it and when presented with the controversy, Bowie split the difference and didn't credit either of them for the songwriting. <laughs> That's some brilliant King Solomon shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> with with all respect to the Spiders from Mars, to me, this rhythm section, alomar George Murray, Dennis Davis are the best rhythm section that Bowie ever worked with. I they, love Alomar. Yeah. Uh, he was the unsung hero in, in just so much of Bowie's music during this time um, unsung, uncredited, unpaid, uh, they could be twisty and slinky and they were always danceable. And I think Bowie lost a lot when he stopped working with them. That's not to say that he should have kept anyone around forever, but in later years, as, as creative as his music was, and it really was, it was often like on top of these straightforward four, four rhythms that didn't match the inventiveness of what was on top of it. Um, but, but these guys are just funky as hell. This is a catchy song, and Bowie sings it soulfully. Um, you know, As Mike talked about, he had tried soul music on his last album, Young Americans, and too often on that one, for him, soul music meant just imitating a black person that he'd seen perform on Soul Train, however well-intentioned he may have been about it. The result was a train wreck, which you usually only saw on Soul Train during sweeps week with way more (laughs) fatalities than you'd expect from a TV variety show.
2: Um,
1: (laughs) That's some dangerous dancing they were doing on there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) On Golden Years, on the other hand, he's actually singing soulfully, like from the gut, showing reverence for the material and for the gifts he's been given. He's putting in the effort, but he's letting the emotional beats of his singing go wherever they might take him. So he nails that here. And as you've all pointed out, it makes for an absolutely amazing song.
4: Yeah. And John, you mentioned like the darkness of this song. These are some pretty dark lyrics. Like, I mean, just the way it opens. Don't let me hear you say life's taking you nowhere. Angel, come get up my baby. Like that that's some really mm-hmm. he just begins it with some really cheerful gaslighting. <laughs> and just like and like you know run for the shadows in these golden years like these are some secretly very dark lyrics uh, i mean they come from a very dark place in his life but it's all like just dressed up as this like you know dance funk extravaganza
0: there's a phrase that's come up on this podcast a few times of who the hell writes this <laughs> and i feel like bowie is like on the mount rushmore <laughs> of who the hell writes this type of songs <laughs> i mean that in a good way and i feel like golden years is absolutely in that list
4: mm mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i mean bowie is more like who the hell has this career right yeah yeah it's a whole career of who the hell writes this
3: <laughs> so we're gonna go on to the third song word on a wing
1: Seems to be everybody's least favorite song on the album, and it's mine too, but I've grown to appreciate it more than I used to. God had shown up in a few David Bowie songs before, but this one is basically a hymn, and it's easy to hear it and think, where in the hell did this come from? Well, it makes more sense if you hear it less as Bowie having a very brief slow train coming phase and more as a cry for help from somebody hitting bottom. It reminds me a little of Spiritualized in that regard. Oh, it, yeah. Yeah. It's still a six-minute ballad, so it's never going to be one of my all-time favorites or anything. But in the context of the album, I think it works. And it shows what a consummate performer Bowie was. Even when he was falling apart, he was this put together. Rich, what do you make of it?
4: Well, ha- have any of you seen The Man Who Fell to Earth?
1: I meant I to have. watch it it's for this episode, list. and I, I never did. No. No.
4: Uh, well, I, I only really rem- remember it in bits and pieces, though I guess the, that feels like how you're supposed to remember it given Bowie's entire experience with Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, but, uh, well, there's a lot of drugs. Uh, a lot of nudity, including from Bowie. Bowie hangs dong in this movie. Uh, and I support that. Uh, and there's also a lot of Bowie working out his demons with his whole lifestyle. So uh, uh, I didn't realize this song was so personal. But after seeing that movie, it, it makes sense to me that Bowie like saw himself as desperately in need of salvation and needed to compose his own hymn. Like, you get a pretty full picture of him in a, in a state of like really deep psychological panic. That movie is a trip. Hmm. Um, but the song, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I remember in high school, like it was really important to me that albums be perfect and Mm. station to station comes so close that I would do all sorts of mental gymnastics to like will this one into being great in my mind. (laughs) But uh, now I'm more willing to just live with all of the great songs that Bowie did give us. And yeah, I don't know. Word on a wing is just kind of a drag for me.
3: I didn't realize that other people didn't like this one. That's, I mean, I hear it and it's just, I'm blown away. I think it's one of his all time greats. And I respect your opinions on it and I just I just didn't know. Um to me it's it's impossibly lovely. It's just one of Bowie's most uniquely structured and most heartfelt songs. Roy Bittan's piano is particularly pretty here and I sometimes see Roy Bittan the way I see Another talented session pianist from a few years earlier, uh, Nikki Hopkins, someone that Mm. producers use when they don't have enough confidence in the material and they're hoping that the pianist will fill in holes that, that they're afraid might open up in the music. Bitten is clever and facile and has a great melodic sense, but he can add wonderful things to a song that it might not necessarily have needed. And sometimes that can suck the rock and roll edge out of some of the Bruce Springsteen songs that he's on. All of which is my way of saying that he didn't do any of that here. And I mean it. His piano playing elevates the song. Word on the Wing is as sincere as Bowie got. It seems to be a legitimate declaration of vulnerability and devotion to a higher power. Although I really like Mike's take that this is just a guy at rock bottom. But there's no faux gospel here. It's just slightly offbeat pop music sung as sincerely as you can imagine from someone who very often kept himself hidden behind several walls at any given time. So it's revelatory in that way. If Bowie, I guess I'm with you guys in that if Bowie did this every time, he might not have been Bowie and it might have gotten old. But just this one time, I find it sublime. John, where do you fall on this?
0: So my instinct has always been to keep a distance from this one just because it's like it's bowie how can how can this be real and like my brain wants to initially parse it as tacky as one that i, I would push away i've taken that position less over the years this one has really grown on me I, I i think i'm actually closer to you ben on this at this point uh whereas long ago i i would have been closer to to mike or rich on this one um Again, it it may have just been a moment where he considered Christianity, but I, I think it, that moment did briefly happen. Again, it, it may have only been long enough for him to, to 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 think about it as grist for writing this song, but there's a real sincerity in here that I find kind of moving, and I don't I don't want to get into the lyrics on on this album too much, but there there's one line uh that, that really strikes me as as, as kind of incisive So, the line where he says, just because I believe don't mean I don't think as well, don't have to question everything in heaven or hell. And I, I think it applies this is this is an idea that applies not just to to religion, um, but to a broader category of good faith arguments and good faith questioning. Like there it it, it falls into an idea of there's from a religious standpoint there are questions that you ask because you genuinely want to know because you want to genuinely understand uh, something that isn't clear to you at the moment and there are questions that you ask just to kind of troll people and because you want to be confrontational and you want to win yeah and i think and he's he's pushing back against the latter he's he this is a line written by somebody who is so broken that his, his desire to know more it, at the moment is deeply sincere. And again, deep sincerity is not something that I'm accustomed to, to thinking about with Bowie. And just generally with this song and its counterpart uh, that ends the album, I, I think that also part of what drives people from this song is that it doesn't fit the notion of what this album is, just like from a, a quick uh, gloss summary. Because we think of it as the transitional album into low. And and, uh, there's some Young America's residue. And we want to just hand wave the rest that doesn't quite fit into there. But there's only six songs on here. Everything has to be considered equally part of the picture. And yes, it's not all equally good. But I think it can't be disregarded either. So that's a long way of, of saying that I don't love it. But I find it way more interesting than I used to.
4: That's it. That's that's really good, John. I I I still don't love the song musically, but I. That's a good point. That the uh, that the sincerity of it is very disarming, and it kind of like catches
1: you off guard, coming from Bowie. I mean, not that not that he's insincere, but no. But there's a lot of you know he's he's usually playing a character of some kind. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I I should clarify this is this is my least favorite song on the album, but it's my least favorite song on one of my favorite albums. So. Oh, I also want to mention
0: like so he he performed this on the seventy sixth tour, and the renditions of it are good, yes, like like it it it's actually kind of a highlight,
3: so let's go on to side b of the album if you're listening on vinyl or if you're listening on Spotify, well, you've already moved on to another album, like the attention span starved millennial that you are <laughs> anyway here's t v c one five
1: This song about a television eating his girlfriend. A subject I think we can all relate to. Hate when that happens. (laughs) I mean, who can honestly say? This is maybe the oddest song on the whole album, so of course I like it a lot. I think maybe the oddest thing about it is that it doesn't really sound like a song about a television eating your girlfriend. I knew what the song was about before I heard it, and I was expecting some kind of dark sci-fi nightmare. Maybe along the lines of Save Your Machine from the Man Who Sold the World.
2: Don't let me stay, don't let me stay. My logic says burn, so send me away. Your minds are too green, I despise all I've seen. You can't save your lives on a savior machine.
1: I wasn't expecting rockin' pneumonia and the boogie woogie flu. <laughs> about it though is that little bit of queasy sort of grinding dissonance slipping in underneath so what it ends up sounding like is a party where something really bad is about to happen but nobody knows it yet and then you get to the whole oh my TV c15 section and we're right back in icy cold futuristic European mode again
2: oh, my TV, C1,
1: song is so cool and only David Bowie could have written it (laughs) what I like about songs like this is that it comes from a time when the most advanced technology most people had in their homes was television so it made a really effective monster if you wanted to write something about technological anxiety like if you wanted to write a song like this now it would have to be about like your girlfriend getting eaten by Facebook or something and that just, (laughs) just doesn't work Or Alexa
4: or just, you know, just everything in our houses. Our our homes are so scary now and we're stuck in them all the
1: time. (laughs) (laughs) But I'd I'd file this song alongside Frank Zappa's I'm the Slime or Jefferson Airplane's Plastic Fantastic Lover. But I don't think Bowie was going for any sort of statement on the evils of television here. I think I think it was just inspired by a bad acid trip Iggy Pop had. John, what do you make of this one? This might be my favorite Bowie song. Wow. It's a good
3: choice. (laughs) It's
0: either this or Heroes. I I, I vacillate. I love this (laughs) song so much. It's so ridiculous. (laughs) And like you said, only Bowie could or would write this. You know, I I said something uh, near the top about how Bowie was good at um, coaxing career highlight performances out of the musicians they gathered around him. And... I just think of of something like that piano part. You know, Mike, I remember you complaining back on the Emerson, Lincoln, like, Palmer <laughs> yeah. episode about the tone of the piano, um, and and I get that. But there's so much life in there, in, in that playing. Oh, the piano playing is great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I get it on the sound, I, but I, I I feel like the, the sound of the piano is is weirdly essential, even though it's objectively bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, th- there's just so many ideas crammed together that, in theory, should just be a total mess. But again, like that's how a lot of the best Bowie rolls. You you have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you combine it together, and it should be just what the hell is this? And in a certain sense, this is what the hell is this. <laughs> hmm. But you know, you ha- you have something like that, like that piercing saxophone that emerges from time to time. that that's Bowie. Um, just throwing this, this thing for color and bowie didn't really play saxophone i mean he did but it wasn't like a uh he wasn't a specialist at it or anything he just said you know what? i'm just gonna throw in this extra little bit of menace and discord into it and it's hmm. gonna work because the cocaine says so it's mm. <laughs> good branding there uh, yeah i i love this one um a few times this podcast i've referenced a, a a bit back in the days when i still made mix cds and i made a uh I made a, a big three CD, uh, one uh, limit one song per artist mix, and this was the Bowie. Like I didn't even think twice. Like it, <laughs> wow. it, it was, it was the one that just fit in the best. And, and, and yeah, it's it is not going to be the first song that most people think of with Bowie, um, and that's probably good because it would frighten people away. But it's it's really good, Rich.
4: Uh, well so Ben I don't want to eat into the sales of your book uh, which everyone should <laughs> buy uh, but I found a Bowie blog called uh, called pushing ahead of the dame that does some really heavy musicology on this song uh, and oh, I'll link yeah. to the post in the show notes because it's it's really good it's uh, basically the author says that the whole sound stage of the song it resembles a flickering television like the way the guitar drones that, uh, that Mike mentioned in each channel they were they, they kind of repeat every few bars like they're static that or something uh, <laughs> and the, the, ver- the verse melody doesn't really progress it just sort of resets uh, yeah. until it briefly like kind of fuzzes into clarity for the bridge the the transition transmission part um and, and then the oh my tvc one five part it, it, it's sort of like the tv cutting in with like an outer space jingle about itself uh, <laughs> like it like, it, like it, it's like you're watching bowie playing this like dinky honky-tonk ditty on american bandstand or something yeah. it, except he's actually trapped inside the television that ate him uh, anyway the song itself so I mean, it's amazing, but I have to admit that this is another song I had to do some mental backflips to really appreciate because it always sounds cooler in my head than when I'm actually listening to it, <laughs> and I think that's a feature, not a bug. Like, uh, unlike "Word on the Wing," in this case, it's because I think Bowie's ambitions for the song are just are just bigger than the production could actually accommodate, and like that's and that's not just the technological limitations of the '70s. Like, I'm, I'm having trouble picturing any producer in any time period being able to pull off a concept like this, and. And you know that that's how David Bowie rolled. He he knew that, and he still went for it. So uh, even even if it doesn't live up to like the picture in my head, this is still like a goddamn masterpiece of a song.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, I for me, that if there is a lesser song on this amazing album, um, this would be it. Um, I like it a lot. It's catchy. It's fun. And Roy Bitten's piano line is is right up front and really clever. And I think in my book, Mike, I make that rockin' pneumonia and boogie-woogie flu comparison too. Um,
1: I think you do, actually, yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> rockin' pneumonia and boogie-woogie flu was a song by Huey Piano-Smith, uh, although the the one that I always heard on the radio growing up was by Johnny Rivers, and it's got an amazing piano part by session musician Larry Nechdel. Um, And I think uh, Roy Bitten on this song is... is at least partly aping that piano line. Um, but at the same time, I find the rhythm section on TVC 15 one five to be kind of uncharacteristically sludgy and even rote. they do pick it up towards the end in that, in that outro. But for a while, it just kind of, it's almost like wading through, through water. Um, and it's, it's kind of hard to get through and it, it almost, it threatens to bring the song to a halt though. It never does. Um, at the same time, Bowie and Roy Bitten do they keep things moving and it bounces along just fine, but it, it's not one of my favorites. I'm gonna send the TV after you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Frank's two thousand inch TV. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the next track. Stay. stay
4: <laughs> nice, I nice. Ah crap. I queued up "Stay" by YouTube by accident. Just a second, let me let me let me look for the right one.
2: You say <laughs>
4: Damn it! No.
2: I only hear what I want uh,
4: now I queued up "Stay" by Lisa Loeb. Wait, let, let me let me let me look through my list. Let me find it.
2: That's
1: long. it. I'm out of here.
2: Stay, stay. Hey, Matthews, get out of my
1: episode! <laughs> <laughs> ah, crap.
4: Now I queued up Stay by the Dave Matthews Band. There are way too many songs named Stay, guys. So many. Okay, let's get it right.
2: break fast
1: If that chord sequence in the chorus sounds naggingly familiar, it might be because you've heard Bowie's 1972 single, John, I'm Only Dancing. Hmm. And as it turns out, Stay was based on a rework of John I'm Only Dancing from around the time of young Americans called John I'm Only Dancing, open parenthesis, again, close parenthesis. a little,
2: take a little, give a little Jolly on, on my back.
1: glad that got turned into Stay because John I'm Only Dancing Again is a corny, ineffective, fake disco song and Stay friggin' rules!
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: This is almost like the entire Station to Station album in miniature. You have the cocaine chill of the Thin White Duke combined with this blazing funk groove. It's like one of those videos of a red-hot nickel ball burning through a block of ice. The actual song part of Stay was catchy enough to be released as a single in the u.s although i don't think it charted but what really makes the song is that killer jam at the end that takes up the last two and a half minutes of the song it's got some really great guitar from earl slick but the star here is the d.a.m rhythm section
3: love the intro to stay um it could be out of a norman whitfield temptations epic like papa was a rolling stone yeah Um, this is a crazy funky song that that's ramped up so much by that rhythm section that mike talked about the whole composition is is very clearly a band effort and while this doesn't affect the music so much i wish bowie would have made it a band composition instead of taking all the credit and royalties for himself uh Like I know he was coked out of his mind at the time, but he had a lot of sober opportunities afterwards to give the other guys credit for this song. Um, It's a catchy song, and I love how an out-of-his-mind Bowie sings the hell out of it. But I'm less enamored of the jam than Mike is. It, It bothers me that Bowie just cuts out with several minutes left in the song, and Earl Slick is left to fill half the track with soloing while Bowie slips out to the cocaine pub, down the street and enjoys a refreshing pint of cocaine earl slick is good but he's not david bowie good and he shouldn't have been left to figure out half of the song for union scale while all the royalties went to bowie over in the coke pub
4: rich what do you make of this Oh, th- this is my favorite song on the album, wow. even more than tvc C five. Uh, regardless of how many times I delayed playing it earlier in favor of other songs named Stay, um, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of funk on Bowie's albums from this period. But uh, but I think this is the only time where he really, uh, honestly, completely crosses over into disco. Uh, with with the exception of John, I'm only dancing again, which, as we've discussed, is the same song. Like, like that's a full on disco intro. It, it's meant to give people time to like snort one or two. Loud. (laughs) lines of coke and get on the floor Uh, and i think we should actually include a brief clip of the intro riff because that riff is huge yeah like uh, like i i got that bit of synesthesia on tvc one five from you know somebody else's blog Uh, but on this song i can just see the riff like filling the sky like it's a giant neon cracking whip or something uh, which feels appropriately 70s But I think the fact that this, that this is my favorite song here is honestly kind of telling about me and Bowie in general because uh, it's also the one that's the most of a band composition with the least input from Bowie himself. And uh, I, I don't want to be a spoil sport and use this episode to crap on Bowie's legacy because uh, I love this album. I think he's great, and I, I have enormous respect for Bowie as a cultural icon and a musical influence. But I don't really listen to his albums that much anymore because there there's almost always a certain, like, imprecision to his songs that kind of rubs against the things that personally resonate with me as a music listener. I, I think it's a glam rock thing. Like he dropped the glam sound after Diamond Dogs, but never really the sensibility. And, and you can even hear it on this song where he sounds kind of asleep and behind the beat, but the groove is just so hot that it all comes together beautifully. And I, I personally, I would have loved more of this kind of Bowie, but I'm also willing to acknowledge that it wasn't really what he was all about as an artist. John, how about you? There's a Melotron.
0: <laughs> he stuck a damn Melotron into this thing and it works and it's awesome. That is
4: a Melotron. Oh yes, it is. Once you hear it, you will never unhear it. Yeah, see this is, see best song on the album. Best song on the album. <laughs> QED. I get the idea of 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 pushing back on on the song a little bit
0: because it's as as Ben says, it it he, David does um you know step away from it for a lot of it i mean yes he's he's heavily involved uh you know in singing the the amazing looping chorus but yes it is it is a song for the other people i don't see that as a bad thing what i what i hear in this song is a song that was written not for the purpose of being a studio track unto itself but basically saying let's just make the awesome live track now do our best approximation of it in a studio session and just worry about the live performances later. This track killed live Mm -hmm. his entire career. Like every, every live stay. I have a lot of, of live stay versions. They are, they all rule. There's a really good one on the on the stage album, and and, and the ones they did in the late seventies. But he brought it back over and over again. And what that I like about Bowie is that he he goes out of his way to give his supporting band members times to shine in performance. Uh, again, like he 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 only does this sometimes in studio setting, but he really really goes out of his way to do it uh, in a live setting, in particular his guitarists, and. And again, he's he's giving he's bringing a bit of that into the studio, which, which again is something he doesn't often do. But I, I enjoy the the act of of letting the two sides blend with each other in a way that wasn't necessarily typical of him. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of this one. That's great. Okay, let's go on to the last
3: song on the album. Wild is the wind.
2: Light.
1: are all really long but these songs take a long time to get where they're going so so this is another 6-minute ballad with double w's in the title but I like it a little <laughs> I like it a lot more than Word on a Wing Wild is the wind was written by Dimitri Tiomkin and Ned Washington for the 1957 film of the same name the original version was recorded by Johnny Mathis but the most famous version was recorded in 1966 by Nina Simone <laughs> Love me, love me,
2: love me Say you do Let me fly away With you For my love is like the wind
1: met Nina Simone in 1975 and was inspired to cover Wild as The Wind as a tribute. And I know her version is the classic, but I gotta say, I like Bowie's the best. His vocal performance here is just great, especially when he sings Don't You Know Your Life itself, with that echo trailing off, which I think was an accident caused by his vocal bleeding into the guitar mic, but it doesn't matter because it sounds cool. The arrangement is really nice, too. A song like this could easily be turned into a big drippy drag but this one has just enough forward momentum to keep it from getting stuck thanks to again that rhythm section you know who else really liked it frank sinatra he was recording at the same studio and he didn't know who this bowie guy was but he was very impressed by his version of "Wild as the wind who's this yahoo yeah (laughs) jack
3: (laughs) i like drippy drag um i (laughs) keep
0: using that John, what do you think of this one? It's not a confusing song, but I find it a confusing closer. Hmm. But I still really, really like it. Uh, For a long time, I had, I don't want to say I had trouble with this one, because that would imply I I thought anything negative of it. But whenever I'd listened to this, I I always found this, I I could never quite figure out what Bowie was going for um, by ending with this, of all things. Because again, it's it's so tonally... it's so different in tone and mood and everything else on the album, but i eventually really came around to it. Um, and there's just this really strong, uh, this great balance between delicacy and power that Bowie is able to pull off, uh, in his singing. And I feel like the song in, in less skilled hands could have become a slog and maybe it, comes a little close at a couple moments, and 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 maybe it's it drags out a little too long for my taste, but I still like it a lot. Like there, it it's it's really tasteful in 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 in, in the final uh, assessment of it. Um. So yeah, I don't necessarily understand again why he ended with this, other than he just decided. Well, I I guess gotta round out with something and this is good here I'll, I'll stick this here um, but at the same time like I almost feel like an album closer that made perfect sense would kind of be antithetical to the general feel of the album yeah. and so I'm in a way I, I am very nowadays I'm very glad that it is where it is I also want to mention that um, he he would revive this one from, from time to time uh, in later years and uh, there is a release from a few years ago of his Glastonbury 2000 set, and he opened with this, huh? And it kind of rules, like it, it it actually works really, really well as an opener. Even though you say like, oh, it's this this slow draggy song, but no, it actually like warms into uh, the rest of the show very, very well. He actually plays a lot of this album on that set, uh, for what it's worth. That's awesome. Yeah, this is a, this is a really, really good song. Uh, it, again, it just it just baffled me for a very long time. Yeah,
3: to John's point, this is a it's a weird pick because at least for the first part of Bowie's career, outside of that god awful pinups album, he just didn't do a lot of cover songs. So this is an offbeat and very out of left field choice, but that almost makes it normal and even predictable for a David Bowie album, but not in a bad way. Um, Mike mentioned the the composer of the melody, Dmitri Tiomkin. Um, And I'll just point out that he composed the scores for two of my favorite Westerns, uh, Red River and Rio Bravo, both directed by Howard Hawks and starring John Wayne, both great movies, great scores. That's just an aside. Um, Bowie here is he's surprisingly straightforward, almost like uh, on word on a wing. Um, And he's cinematic in a way. Um, Even though that sounds kind of cheesy to say, since it's from a movie, Um, he's almost jazz singing which I don't normally consider even a remotely good thing, but it works here. I think it's a lovely song. Rich, how about you?
4: Oh Well, it's definitely my preferred of the two W blank blank W <laughs> songs on the album just because it, it stays in one place more and doesn't like wander around in search of a hook. And the, I think the band performance is really great here. But otherwise, eh, it's fine. Like... I don't know, Station to Station to me is one of the definitive examples of how artists would stick the weakest songs on the album at the end of each side, uh, because on LP the grooves get smaller and the needle just isn't able to vibrate as much and create as rich of a musical soundscape. So you get the fireworks factory like right at the beginning of each side, and now you're (laughs) kind of just like on the ride home.
2: Um,
4: I I do like that it was inspired by Nina Simone, though, uh, uh, who I'm not as familiar with as I should be, but uh, I've been meaning to get into her for some time now. Um, I'll link an article I found in the show notes But apparently they they didn't just meet once offhand like she was in a slump at the time and for a while in the early 70s they would talk on the phone for hours almost every night Uh, and he would reassure her that she was a true genius and that and he was just a rock and roller who found the right formula which is nice and self-aware of him. But uh, I want to be careful not to paint Bowie as some sort of like white savior or something. But I, but I do know that he consistently voiced support for black musicians throughout his career. Like there, there's a clip that went viral right after he died where he, he called MTV out on on the air for not airing music videos featuring black artists. Mm. So uh, yeah, that's it, which is awesome of him. Uh, so I, I might not like all of his songs, but you know Bowie, he, he was a true mensch, like a, a real human <laughs> being is what I'm saying.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Rich, I would say of, of songs with this structure in the title, I, I think you would go with What in the World by the Dukes of Stratosphere over these two. <laughs> Part anyway. of our theme song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and that takes us to Mike. So, Mike, can you summarize this? what you think of this album? No.
4: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're done. Well, that's it, folks. <laughs> uh,
1: Station to Station is in many ways the coolest David Bowie album, which isn't bad for somebody going through a complete mental breakdown. But <laughs> David Bowie could have died while making this album, and according to him, he almost did several times. But with the help of his friends Iggy Pop and Brian Eno, he ditched the Thin White Duke persona, relocated to Berlin, and made some more of the best music he'd ever made. So, I guess the best thing about Station to Station is that it wasn't his last.
3: I like that. John, what do you make of it?
0: I mean, I love this album. Um again, it's it's it was one of the, the earliest Bowie albums uh to grab me. And no, I, I don't necessarily adore every uh single track on here or, or every moment, but I feel like just as a presentation of who Bowie was as just the this guy who could combine the completely crazy and weird with the direct and the accessible and would arrange them together in, in ways that, you know, normal people wouldn't think of. Like he was really just one of the greats of all time in that regard. And again, I I feel like this album is a very effective presentation of, of my favorite side of him. And again, it, it catches him at a really interesting point in his career. Um, You know, coming out of a period that, for me hadn't been great going into a period that's one of his most interesting. It's really the the most quintessential example of what a transitional album is and it shows that uh you know the period of not necessarily knowing where you're going, just knowing that you're doing something interesting can be a mutton the most fruitful for a great artist. So yeah, if if you're into Bowie and you somehow don't have this yet. Like this is one you really, really need to get. Um, If nothing else, it'll help establish whether you just like the, the most popular aspects of him, or if uh, Bowie as a general concept is really for you. And I would say that he is for me. I like that. Rich, do you have a final thought? Not forever, but just about this
4: album. (laughs) There will be more episodes of Discord and Rhyme. (laughs) Uh, Well, I've done some weird fourth dimensional chess in this episode to come up with reasons why the songs are good and not good at the same time. And it's been odd, but that's because it's really hard to get a fix on Bowie as an artist. So I'm going to talk about why he's great. So I mentioned playing Life on Mars uh, in in the student lounge in grad school the day Bowie died. And uh, well, so later that day in the same lounge, I I overheard a conversation between some students in my program and they were talking about how none of them could name a single David Bowie song and uh, they were all something like five to eight years younger than me uh, because I went back to school relatively late in life. So the first response in my head was, "Ah, damn kids, uh, (laughs) whippersnappers. Uh, but on the other hand, the, the whole point of Bowie's music is change, like the idea that pop culture is ephemeral, that fame is fleeting. Excuse me, fame is fleeting. <laughs> uh, and like this this podcast is all about looking back on our favorite albums. So it, it can be tough to acknowledge that this is all going to be forgotten someday. And, and that's in my mind a perfectly healthy and mature approach to art and just what Bowie was about. And these albums we talk about are just tiny little pieces of space time. And even if I don't love every single song, Station to Station is just a damn fine piece of space time, whether or not anybody remembers it in 100 years.
3: That's a wonderful point, Rich, but your classmates were idiots and they were wrong. (laughs) Um. I'll tell them that. (laughs) This album is a powerhouse. Uh, There aren't many songs, but each song is big and and each one's so good. Bowie took a real chance here. You know, when you have 12 songs on an album or 14 like the Beatles did, they don't all have to be winners. Um, If you go bigger than that, then that almost becomes the shtick of the album. Kind of like Sandinista by The Clash. You don't have to like every song because you'll like enough of them. And some of them are even obvious throwaways. There's none of that here. Bowie places a big bet on all six songs on Station to Station. If one of them sucks, that's it doesn't ruin the album, but that's a lot of the album you, you've lost right there. But his bet paid off because they're all great, at least in some way. And Station to Station ended up being one of the best albums of his career or anyone else's. So, great choice on this one, Mike.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, yeah,
3: Mike, if people want to listen to, to more David Bowie music, what should they listen to?
1: Well, if you like Station to Station, the next two albums you need to hear are the next two albums he made, Low and Heroes. Are the first two albums of his Berlin trilogy.
2: <laughs> Don't you wonder sometimes
1: Bowie was working very closely with Brian Eno during the Berlin period, and these albums are some of the most experimental and futuristic music he ever made. Not everyone is a a big fan of the second halves of those albums, which are mostly made up of atmospheric instrumentals. Those are the parts of Ben's book where he's wrong that I alluded to. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully funny. (laughs) But I, I like that stuff a lot. And the actual songs on those albums—Hooey, uh, I mean, yeah. Sound and Vision, Beauty and the Beast, Breaking Glass. Uh, if you've only ever heard "Heroes" the song in its edited down single version, you need to go lie down, get your headphones cranked up, and hear all six minutes of the album version, because it might be the best song he ever did.
0: john what would you recommend i've got a couple recommendations i mean i like a lot a lot of bowie albums um but there's two in particular i wanted to mention here uh one of them is uh the nassau coliseum 1976 show uh used to be a bonus disc on uh, one of the station station reissues Uh, now i think you can get it as, as as its own album it's really good um I would say it's right up there with the Zika Stardust soundtrack as my favorite live Bowie.
2: This week has passed me so slowly. The days were on the ease. Maybe I'll take something to help me. Hope someone takes after me. There's always a change in the weather. Stay here tonight That would be crazy tonight Stay That's what I meant to say Or do something But what i never say is Stay this time I've been a too, so bad This time
0: does a lot of this album on it, but he also uh, does some really interesting reinterpretations of older material in, in the Thin White Duke uh, persona. So that's one. Uh, the other one I want to mention is the album that I think in a lot of ways is the one in his career that comes closest to this one. And that's his final album, Black Star. Yeah. Um, it presents Bowie in my favorite mode of Bowie, which is the, the ambiguous genre uh, Bowie, where he's just taking all sorts of, of interesting elements from here and there and combining them in ways uh, that really nobody else was going to think of. Um, it starts with uh, a track that's a, a little shorter uh, than the title track uh, to Station Station. It, the track is called Black Star. In the Villa
2: of men, in the of solitary candle oh.
0: Really, really magnificent. There's there's hip hop elements. There's Gregorian chant elements. There are these these synth drones. It uh, has an amazing line. Um, you're just a flash in the pan. I'm the great I am. It's just amazing. <laughs> and and it has to also be mentioned that uh, this was his own epitaph. Mm -hmm. He made the album in full consciousness that he was dying as he made it. And uh, he shaped uh, the content uh, of a lot of the music based around this idea. Uh, In particular, there's a song on there called Lazarus, um, which for me is one of the most emotionally devastating things that he ever did. And that album, uh, for a lot of reasons, was actually one of the major... Uh, drivers for me to significantly reassess uh, Bowie in my 30s. So, yeah, I, I highly recommend Black Star.
4: I actually didn't get around to listening to it until yesterday. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's really, really good. Uh, I actually wasn't feeling so great yesterday. And then I listened to it and it cheered me up because my mind is broken. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's a wonderful album. Rich, what would you pick? So I'm going to recommend his 2002 album, Heathen, which was the first time uh, Bowie teamed up with Tony Visconti since uh, Scary Monsters in 1980, and they would continue to work together until Bowie's death. Uh, The the album cover is very gray And the music is also very gray uh, But Bowie's in a very sedate Self-reflective mode on the album And it it feels uh, extremely deliberate And carefully composed In a way Bowie had rarely ever done Uh, Like There are a few terrific covers Including Cactus by the Pixies uh, And I'm going to clip a song called 515 The Angels Have Gone Which I think is a good example of the sort of vein of songwriting he was tapping into on this album
2: 515
4: give an honorable mention to reality the follow-up album from 2003 which is it's definitely a step down but it has some of the quirkier bowie that you don't get on heathen uh, like a cover of the modern lovers pablo picasso that's really only a cover in the broadest sense it's more like bowie said hmm this song has really good lyrics i'm gonna put them in a completely new song
0: (laughs) i just want to mention that the title track to heathen um, both in its studio and live incarnations is probably one of my favorite bowie songs
4: It's a a remarkably even album.
0: Yeah. Yeah, those are all great picks. Bowie made
3: so many colorful and interesting albums over his lifetime that are stuffed with great songs. I'd almost say that you can't go wrong just picking up any David Bowie album. Except that if you pick up a Bowie album from the mid to late 80s, it's like getting a scratch-off ticket that not only isn't a winner, but gives you a paper cut that ends up getting infected and gangrenous and eventually your hand has to be amputated. Never let me down, Ben.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> but after that awful stretch in 1993, Bowie teamed up again with producer and guitarist Nile Rodgers for a fresh start. They'd collaborated in the early 1980s and they'd had big commercial hits like Let's Dance, Dance Dancing Machine, and Dance, Dance, Dance. So (laughs) it might have seemed like an attempt to recapture past commercial glories and, and maybe just to create vapid dance music. But to my ears, Bowie here is trying to make creative and vital music for the first time in almost a decade. And on top of the dance beats were interesting songs performed by a singer who was just all in with them. Black Tie White Noise isn't a Bowie masterpiece, and it shouldn't necessarily be your next listen after this one, but I do believe it's criminally underrated, and I want to stand for it, as Rich's idiot classmates might say. <laughs>
4: recommending albums from like 1993 onward apparently uh, I, I guess we should just give the obligatory mention that you should hear hunky dory ziggy stardust <laughs> and insane the man who sold the world all of the old classic albums they're, they're great you should hear them but yeah we're we're iconoclasts on this podcast <laughs> we, we break from the standard recommendations on this show we're like that so
3: that was station to station next time around we've hit episode 69 nice but we're not covering an album by The Nice. Sorry, John. I'm fine. Instead, Will and a rotating group of hosts will be talking about 69 love songs by The Magnetic Fields.
4: Yep, we're doing it. All 69 of them. Uh, We've been working on this for a while and we're planning to release it in three parts over the week of March 23rd. Uh, So look for that in your podcatchers. But for now, let's roll us some credits.
3: Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Station to Station and other albums by David Bowie at your local record store or directly from store.davidbowie.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates and on Instagram for pictures of our pets. Buy my book, All the Days of His Life, Listening to David Bowie Song by Song on Amazon and visit John's Music Review Archive at Reviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. Special thanks to Mike for editing, production, our theme song, original music, and an awesome job hosting this episode. See you next album and be ever wonderful.
2: Art is what happens when you learn to dream.